John chapter 19, St. John chapter 19, beginning with verse number 25. St. John chapter 19, beginning with verse number 25. John chapter 19, verse 25. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said unto his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to his disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a hyssop and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. Bowing his head, he gave up the spirit. All right, the words of a dying man. Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we have together in your house. We pray that you would open up our ears, our hearts, that we would hear your word today with clarity. We are reminded that the Word of God states that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. We ask that our minds and hearts would be receptive today, that we may sense your presence, and that the liberty of the Holy Spirit will be at full reign this morning. We pray that your Word would uh, pierce our hearts, that we would receive it, and that we would bear fruit. Not only would we be faithful believers, but fruitful believers as well. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. The last few weeks, we have been in a sermon series called The Words of a Dying Man. We've been looking at Jesus' last words from the cross. Within six hours of him suffering on the cross, the scripture states that he made seven statements from the cross. These seven statements are recorded as his dying words. Now it's important for us to pay close attention to Jesus' final words because it holds, very, uh, it holds significance to us. His last words hold significance to us. Now let's not get confused because I, uh, the Scripture teaches that everything that Jesus said is significant and it important. For instance, the Bible says in John 6, 63, Jesus said, the words that I speak, they are spirit and they are life. So everything that Jesus said is significant, and everything that Jesus said is very important. But what I want you to see this morning is that his last words, his very last words as he is suffering on the cross, I believe holds significance this morning, and I believe it holds much weight this morning. I want to ask you a question. What was our Savior thinking as he was dying on the cross? What was he thinking? What was running through his mind as he was suffering for the sins of the world? Have you ever thought about that? What was going through his heart? What was going through his mind? What was going through his emotions as he is suffering for the sins of the world? The seven statements from the cross are his dying words. And I believe those words hold great significance this morning because they reveal to us his heart. They reveal to us what's most important to him. The seven words, or seven statements, should I say, from the cross, 
are as follows. Number one, he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. The second statement he said from the cross was, Truly I say unto you, you will be with me in paradise. The third statement that he says from the cross is, Woman, this is your son. And then he says to the disciple, Behold, this is your mother. The fourth statement that he says from the cross is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The fifth statement is, I thirst. The sixth statement is, it is finished. And finally, Jesus' last words on the cross is, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. These are the seven statements from the cross. These are the words of a dying man. These last words reveal to us his heart. These last words reveal to us what's most important to him. These last words reveal the deepest feelings as he is suffering on the cross. Listen, ladies and gentlemen, in the midst of his suffering, in the midst of his pain, in the midst of his agony, these words reveal a clue to us what his deepest thoughts are. And I think that it is very important for us to pay very close attention as we listen to the words of this dying man. You see, we've already looked at two of them, didn't we? We looked at the first two statements. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. And last week we looked at, uh, uh, today you will be with me in paradise. Those two statements, I've preached a whole sermon on them. And so if you were not here to listen to that, then I think you should go to the website and listen to it so you can get caught up. So for the sake of time, I'm not going to do any review this morning. I'm just going to go right on with the sermon about the third statement. The Bible says his third statement is John chapter 19, verse number 26. John 19, 26. I want you to look at it one more time and look at the third statement that Jesus says from the cross as he is dying for the sins of the world. He says in John 19, verse 26, Woman, behold your son. And then the Bible says that the disciple, the disciple whom he loved, he said, Behold your mother. You see, these statements are kind of odd at first. And out of all my years of preaching, all my years of preaching, I have never really preached on this statement before. And I've been preaching for many years, but I've never really preached on this particular statement because it's kind of weird, isn't it? It feels as though it's a side note. It feels as though Jesus is dying on the cross And Jesus forgets about something and says, hold hold on, let me take care of family business real quick. Uh, It doesn't look like it fits. I mean, everything else seems to be theological. Everything else seems to be practical. Everything else seems to be the fulfilling of Scripture. But yet when it comes to this Scripture, it doesn't seem too theological. It doesn't seem important. As a matter of fact, it it doesn't even seem weighty as the other statements. It seems like it's a side note, and it seems like it doesn't really involve us. Jesus has taken care of his mother, so we just need to continue to read down on the text and forget about what Jesus said. But I want you to notice this morning that this scripture, even though 
I have taken a second look at it, I have found some wonderful principles in this scripture that is really amazing. So it's very important that we pay attention to what Jesus was actually meaning when he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And he looked at his mother and said, Behold your son. I want you to listen to me very carefully. Did you notice in John chapter 19... And verse number 26, did you notice that there are at least four people at the foot of the cross? There is his mother, his mother, his mother's sister, Mary Magdalene, and the disciple whom he, lo he loves. So there is at least four people right at the foot of the cross. Now there are other blasphemers, there's other religious leaders there, but right at the foot of the cross, John, who is writing this letter writing this letter indicates to us, or writing this book indicates to us that there's at least four people at the foot of the cross. His mother, his mother's sister, Mary Magdalene, and the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, in other words, Jesus has his mother, Jesus has his aunt, Jesus has a close female friend, Mary Magdalene, and he has his best friend, the disciple who, whom he loves. John, we would say. So he has is a couple family members, his best friend and Mary Magdalene. That's all that's at the foot of the cross. Now, this is what I want you to see. Where are his brothers? Where's the sisters at? Where are the 11 disciples? Why? If he is dying on his deathbed, I would suppose that you would call your family in to say your last words. But yet nowhere in this text do you find his brothers, you don't find his sisters, you don't find the 11 other disciples. Where are the people that he healed? Oh, what about the big sermon he preached on the Judean hillside and fed 5,000 men, not including women and children. Why aren't they there? What about blind Bartimaeus? What about Lazarus? He was close to Lazarus. Nobody was at the foot of the cross. John records just a few people was at the foot of the cross. That was actually his friends and family. Ladies and gentlemen, sometimes we can just read through Scripture and we can forget the significance of what's happening right in front of us. He has two family members, his aunt and his mother and two friends at the foot of the cross. He had a bunch of enemies at the foot of the cross, but yet just a few people who were really dear to him, and yet none of his brothers were there, none of his sisters were there, the 11 other disciples were not there, the people that he healed, they didn't show up. We don't have record of them. What about all those people who supposedly believed in him? They didn't show up either. And as I dug in Scripture, it, it seems to me that the Scripture interprets Scripture, and I think that I can make a case for this, that if you look at Scripture, John chapter 7, verse number 5, it states this about Jesus, Jesus and his family. Now get this, this is his family's perspective of Jesus, okay? So don't lose me, John 7 verse 5, and I quote, For even his brothers did not believe in him. So the gospel records the same gospel that I just read out of, 
The gospel records that his brothers didn't even believe in him. They didn't even believe in him. Now what about this? Don't lose me. Get this scripture. Mark chapter 3 verse 21. Mark 3 21. And I quote, But when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said he was out of his mind. Who? His family, Jesus' brothers, Jesus' sisters, they went to get a hold of him and they said, Jesus, you are out of your mind. So it's no wonder Jesus said in Matthew 13, verse 57, Jesus said it like this. He said, or, or the gospel said it like this. So they were offended at him, but Jesus said, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. So in other words, his family were not the greatest supporting family that you could ask for. His brothers were not supporting him. His sisters were not supporting him. His cousins, his aunts, his uncles, just for the exception, of, they were not supporting him. How many has ever been a part of a family that you didn't think they supported you? They, didn't, they thought he was out of his mind. His brothers didn't even believe in him. So it would, I would conclude that at the cross, there was tension in the family. There was tension between the brothers. There was tension between him and the sisters. They didn't believe in him. They were not there. Now, you say, well, pastor, I didn't know that Jesus had brothers and Jesus had sisters. Well, the Bible is clear that Jesus had some brothers and sisters, that Mary obviously had other children beside, besides Jesus with Joseph. And we know that Jesus was born from a, uh, of a virgin. There was no sexual contact. But after he was born, uh, Mary obviously had children with Joseph. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 13, Matthew chapter 13, look at it, Matthew 13 verse 55. Matthew chapter 13 verse 55, I want to show to you that Jesus did have some brothers and he did have some sisters. Matthew chapter 13 verse 55, this is what they were saying about him in the city of Nazareth. Is this not the carpenter's son? Is this not Mary or is this not his mother called Mary? His brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, verse 56, and his sisters, are they not all with us? You see what they're saying here? The, the gospel writer is saying that Jesus had some brothers and he did have some sisters, but they were not there at the foot of the cross. You have his mother there, and you do have Mary Magdalene there. You have his aunt there, and you have John, which is a disciple, you have there. Now, Mary is obviously grieving at the foot of the cross, don't you think? Mary is having a hard time. I want to throw this scripture in here, just it's, it's a freebie, that I want you to look at Luke chapter 2, verse 34. Luke chapter 2, verse 34, and Simon prophesied this to Mary as Jesus was a child, don't lose me, Luke chapter 2, verse number 34. Luke 2 and verse number 34. Luke chapter 2, verse 34, And Simon blessed them, this is when Jesus was being dedicated, and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and the rising of many in Israel for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce your own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. You know what Simon was saying? Simon said to Mary, Mary, you're going to have a difficult time. 
Now, I know we don't like to focus on this because we're not Catholic, but let's just break the news down. She's a mother, and she's having a very difficult time. Her son is dying on the cross, and the Scripture says it's going to be like a sword that's going to pierce your soul. She is at the foot of the cross, and it's like a sword piercing her soul. She is grieving for her son. The aunt is grieving, consoling her sister. Mary Magdalene and John is there, but no brothers, no sisters. The 11 other disciples are not there. Nobody that he healed, nobody's there. It seems to me that he has a whole lot more enemies at the cross than he does those who believe in him. Are you getting what I'm saying this morning? Now, for to be correct in Scripture, his brothers did believe in him after the resurrection. According to Acts 1.14, they did believe after the resurrection, but before the resurrection, they did not believe. Now, what are you saying, Pastor? I am saying this. This story teaches us today that, number one, all families have issues. That's what it teaches us. Can somebody say amen and raise your hand and say, well, I know that's the truth. Come on. All families have issues. Jesus, there was issues in his family. And what was the issue? Well, maybe they were jealous of him. I, I don't know. I think I'd probably have a hard time if I was related to someone and they're just feeding the multitude and raising the dead. I mean, I mean, maybe there's jealousy there. Maybe there's envy there. Maybe there's pride. Maybe there's fear. But there was some issues in the family and they were not at the cross. They were not there. There was issues going on. There was tension going on. And let me tell you something, ladies and gentlemen. Even Jesus' death didn't even bring people together at the cross. Did you, did you listen to what this preacher just said? Even Jesus' death did not bring people together at the cross. What are you saying, preacher? Devastation doesn't always fix problems. Just because there's devastation in your family, it brings people together for a short while, but it doesn't fix issues. Jesus' death didn't bring everybody at the cross. You don't see the 11 disciples say, Lord, forgive me, I should have been here, I should have done more. You don't see his sisters, you don't see his brothers say, forgive me, you really are the Messiah. No, 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 no. There was some issues, there was some tension. And this story teaches us that no matter wh what kind of Christian you are, or how big your Bible is, or how Pentecostal proud you may be, every person has issues in their family. Boy, I wish somebody would just agree with the preacher. I said every family has some issues. We all have some issues. We all have some issues to deal with. And let me just stop and say this. If there is conflict in your family, or maybe there's conflict in your marriage, or if there's conflict with your children, if there's some issues there, let me just practically give you some ways to help you with, some, with issues in your family. Can I do that? This is a side note. Number one, if you are facing issues in your family, number one, number one, make conflict resolution the priority rather than winning or being right. Now that was a mouthful right there, but I'll say it again. Make conflict resolution the priority rather than winning or being right. And how many knows that a lot of tension and a lot of strife happens in our home because we want to be right or we want to fix the other person? 
Ladies and gentlemen, if the Holy Ghost can't fix them, you can't fix them. I hear people say, well, I just love him. Well, is he a Christian? No, but I'm working on him. Listen, quit trying to fix people. Quit trying. Some of us worship our ideas. You know, just some of us worship our ideas, our perspectives, our opinions. Some of us, we love our ideas. We worship. We bow down to our ideas. And if you're going to resolve conflict, you've got to understand that you can't always be right. You, conflict resolution should be the priority. Come into an agreement, not defending that you're right all the time. Don't fix people. Be respectful of other people's viewpoints. Number two, focus on the present. In other words, if you're dealing with conflict, you cannot bring up people's past all the time. If you've already dealt with it and it's buried, don't be bringing somebody's past up when you get in an argument. Because what happens in an argument, we feel like we got to throw something back. So what do we do? We reach way back in the past and we try to find something that they did so we can throw it at them. But if you're going to, if you're going to have a successful relationship, no matter what relationship that may be, you've got to realize you cannot reach back in the past and throw stones at people all the time to give you leverage. Number three, you've got to communicate and not argue. You see, communication, listen to me, communication is not talking. How many grew up and your parents said, did you understand what I said? Did you understand what I said? Because you know what parents are saying? Communication is not what's being said, it's what's being understood. So that's why we can talk to her blue in the face, but if they don't understand, you're not successfully. How do I know I've communicated when the other person understands completely? That's when you have communicated. Number four, you got to pick your battles. In other words, not everything should be a battle or in a war. Some people like wars and battles. They will fight over everything. Come on, somebody. They will fight. But listen, let me ask you a question. Is it worthy of your time and attention to fight about everything? No. Number five, be willing to forgive. And forgiveness simply means this. I relinquish, I relinquish the right to punish you. That is forgiveness. I give up the right to punish you. That is what you're saying when I forgive you. I'm letting you off the hook, and I relinquish the urge to punish you. And lastly, lastly, you need to know when to let things go. There are some things that you can argue overnight and argue and argue. That person will never change their mind. So you just got to learn to dismantle the horse and let it go. You've got to learn to let things go. You've got to agree to disagree and don't be offended that they don't take your viewpoint all the time. And one of the things about church is, and I've seen this all my life, if I disagree with you, we want to get defensive and think that somehow I've offended you. Every person is okay to have their opinion and their viewpoint, and it's okay to agree to disagree. We don't have to split the church over because you disagree with something. Can I hear an amen this morning? So these are practical ways that you can resolve conflict in your family. Now isn't it something I got all of that out of, woman, behold thy son? 
there is tension in the family. These disciples, these sisters, they, they wasn't on board with Jesus. There was tension in the family. And I pray today that you be wise and you resolve conflict in your family and be proactive about it. Listen, families can be restored because after the resurrection, they're all worshiping together with Mary in Acts chapter 1, verse 14. They were all together. Now, I want you to see something that I've never saw before. Get this. They're at the foot of the cross, and I thought to myself, here is Jesus hanging on the cross. He's suffering for the sins of the world. He looks over, or he looks down, and says, you know, woman, behold thy son. And then he looks to the disciples and says, behold thy mother. And don't lose me. This is what's interesting. He's dying for the sins of the world. The wrath of God is being placed upon him. Jesus himself feels forsaken. And as he's dying for the sins of the world, he takes care of his mother. Now, that don't mean anything to you, but what's significant is this. Why couldn't Jesus have done that after the resurrection? Why couldn't Jesus, after the resurrection, say, Hey, John, come over here. I forgot to tell you something. Can you take care of my mama? I'm getting ready to ascend to heaven, and I want to make sure you take care of my mom. Oh, or why didn't Jesus take care of it before the crucifixion? Because remember, the disciple who he loves is John, and the Bible says John laid his head upon his breast at the table. Why couldn't Jesus say, Hey, John as his head was laying on his breast. Do you think you can take care of my mom for me? Why do you think that Jesus has to make a big deal at the cross about his mother being taken care of when he could have taken care of it before the cross or after the cross? Why take care of it now? Because... Every word that Jesus says from the cross is significant, and every word that Jesus says from the cross reveals his heart. And do you know why I believe that Jesus says this at the cross? Because it demonstrates this principle, number two, that God not only loves you by offering you salvation, but he also cares about every detail of your life. You see, Jesus is dying for the sins of the world. He's offering salvation to the world. But at the same time, He is caring for His mother. So that tells me that Jesus loves you by offering you salvation, but He also cares about every detail of your life. He cares about your life. Every detail of your life. You see, the Gospel writer said it like this. In Luke chapter 12, verse 7, but the very hairs of your head are numbered. Do not fear, therefore, for you are more valuable than sparrows. The Bible says in 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your care upon him, for he cares for you. In other words, Jesus not only loves you by giving you salvation, he loves you because he can be involved in every detail of your life. Every detail of your life. He loves you. 
Isn't it interesting that Jesus, get this, Jesus tells Mary, behold your son. And Jesus tells John to behold your mother. But stop, stop. This is, this is what blows me away, okay? I mean, it just blows me away that John here is the disciple who Jesus loves. John is not actually Mary's son. And Mary is not actually John's mother. I think I would say, this is what I think it should have happened. He's dying on the cross. His other brothers and sisters should have been there, and he should have said, hey, James, do you think you could take care of our mother? Or I would have looked at my sisters and said, hey, and you fill in the blank, do you think you can take care of our mother? And but yet John is telling a disciple who is not a blood relative, take care of my mother. He's looking at his mother and saying, View him as your son, and vice versa. Isn't that interesting? Jesus is telling the disciple to take care of his mother, and Jesus is telling John to treat his mother like his own mother. What are you saying, Pastor? Don't, this is so awesome. I'm about, I was studying, and I was like, you ever get the Word of God? I just... I just got really excited in my office. I almost got on Facebook Live so you can just see my expression. But I'm going to tell you, John is not Mary's biological son. And Mary is not John's mother. But yet Jesus is giving the care of his mother to a disciple. Because at the foot of the cross, new relationships are formed. I'm going to say that again. At the foot of the cross, new relationships are formed. At the foot of the cross, new relationships are formed. I'm going to say it again. At the foot of the cross, new relationships are formed. Because there is a new fellowship being formed at the foot of the cross. It's not a fellowship of bloodline. It's not a fellowship of last name. It's not a fellowship of a family circle. It's not a fellowship of names. But it is a fellowship of the Spirit. God is uniting people together as family at the foot of the cross. Woo! Because, ladies and gentlemen, that's what happens at the foot of the cross. At the foot of the cross, we become family if we are a part of the household of God. Hallelujah. Did you hear me today? Jesus is saying, John, take care of my mother. I know she's not your biological mother, but treat her as if she's your biological mother. 
Mother, I know John is not your biological son, but treat him as your biological son. And it happened at the foot of the cross because that's what God does at the foot of the cross. He binds us together as family. He binds the poor with the rich. He binds the illiterate with the educated. He binds the black with the white. He binds the Asian with the Hispanic. We we are joined together at the foot of the cross. That's why the poor and the rich, that's why the clergy and the laity, the black, the white, the Asian, the Hispanic, can all hold hands together and be one family because at the cross we're made one together. All true believers are members of the family of God. If you don't like coming to church, there is a problem somewhere, somehow in your soul. Because this is a family and we should want to partake with family. We should want to fellowship with family. We want to love on family because we are bonded together by the Spirit of God. We are family. That's why we like to fellowship. That's why we shake hands. That's why we go out to eat. That's why we go to people's homes. Because it's more than a social club. We are a family joined together by the Spirit of God. We're a family. You say, well, pastor, I just don't like it. And the reason people don't like it is because they have horrible family lives. And you think that just because your natural family treated you bad, then the spiritual family will treat you bad. Well, guess what? There's always fruits and nuts in every family, but it teaches me to love you anyway. Can I hear an amen? I don't have to, oh hallelujah, I don't have to agree with everything you say, I don't have to agree with how you treat me, but we are still family, and we are still in this thing together. Hallelujah, we're still family. That's why we can pray for other churches. That's why we can, you know, there's people that's left this church and said, you know, I just, it doesn't fit me, I want to go to, that's fine. I'm not going to cut you off in public. We're still family. We're still family. All true believers become members of God's family. Ephesians 2.19 Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens of the saints and members of the household of God. When you become born again, you are baptized into the family of God then we encourage you to receive the baptism of water to show that you're a part of the family. And then we encourage you to have the baptism of fire because you should go and recruit other people to be a part of the family of God. You see, Jesus started something new at the cross. He was getting people ready for it. In Matthew 12, verse 49, Jesus said it like this. He said, Here are my brothers, here is my mother and brother, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven, they are my brothers and my mother and my sister. Jesus is saying, I am starting a new covenant. It's not connected by physical blood any longer. It's connected by the Spirit of God. Whoever does the will of my Father, you are related to me. Hallelujah. Surely I say to you, Matthew 25, verse 40, Surely I say to you, and as much as you do it to one of the least of these, my brother, you do it to me. Why? Because we're family. 
John, even James, excuse me, said in James 1.27, he said, pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, that you must visit or care for the orphans and the widows in trouble and that you may be unspotted from the world. Boy, isn't that interesting. We have all kinds of seminars in the church, single and satisfied. We have marriage conferences. We have, you know, beat up devil conferences. Come on, somebody. Take back what... And yet, the scripture indicates in 1 Timothy chapter 5 that one of the responsibilities of the church is to care for the widows and the orphans. If your natural family can't take care of you, the church's responsibility is to look after the widows. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 1, you know what he says? You need to treat older men as fathers. You need to treat younger men as brothers. You need to treat older men as mothers. You need to treat younger women as sisters. Why? Because now we are part of the family of God. And if we would begin to start teaching our children that we need to respect our elders and treat older men like your father and treat the older women like mothers, we wouldn't have half of the disrespect that we have towards our elders. But what we have is peacocks running around telling us, you can just speak your mind. If you don't like it, baby, just say, no, 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 no. I was brought up in the old school and I was told to keep my mouth shut if I didn't have nothing nice to say. Don't say it at all. We need to start treating older men as fathers. Younger men as our brothers. I'm not going to look at you in a lustful way, the women of this church, because they are my sisters. Come on, somebody. We are sisters and brothers. And that is why in the first century of the church, the first century of the church, a custom, Sister Kathy, was started. In the first century of the church, Athanasius records that fellow brothers and sisters, the saints, the household of God, started referring to each other as brother and sister so-and-so. Why? Because they understood that we are part of a family and now we're joined together by the Spirit, and we are brothers, and thus the custom became Brother David, Sister Kathy, Sister Portia, Brother Sean, because I'm referring to you, you're just not Sean. You're just not somebody in the world. You are my brother, Sean. You're not just Eric. You are my brother, Eric. We're joined together by the Spirit of Almighty God. You may have a different mother than I, but we are still joined together by a common thread, and it is by the Spirit of the living God. So they came together, and that is why the early church had a meal every week, a potluck meal. Every week. They participated of the Eucharist. They had an agape feast every week because they understood that families eat together, families fellowship together, families want to be 
together. So let's go have fried chicken together. What do y'all think? <laughs> Everybody say amen. So what can we learn from this story? We learn that every family has issues. We learn that God not only loves us by giving us salvation, but He cares for every detail of our life. And we learn that at the foot of the cross, new relationships are formed and we become the family of God. Amen. Did you enjoy the word of the Lord today?